Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. So our events recorded for us here today is the, it's the calling of Levi or the calling of Matthew. Levi's other name is, is Matthew. We know that from the other gospel accounts of this. This is in the other synoptic gospels, so a big fancy word. The first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are known as the synoptic gospels and just think similar they all share the bulk of their content. And John is the fourth gospel that has written later and fills in a lot of detail we don't get from the other three gospels. But this, is a, this account is found in Mark chapter 9 and also in, in Matthew chapter 9 and Mark chapter 2. So, and it's, this location of the story isn't exactly the same place. We have the healing of this leper found in all three gospels, the healing of the paralytic found in all three Gospels, and then the calling of Matthew or Levi. We know it's Matthew. Matthew, who is called here, is also the writer of the Gospel of Matthew, and he gets it right. He calls himself Matthew in Matthew chapter 9. But also later, the lists of disciples that Luke describes, that Mark describes, that Matthew describes, include no one named Levi, but a man named Matthew. So this is the calling of Levi or of Matthew. It's common to have two different names back then. But it is, it is, certain, it is at a certain location in the storyline here of what Jesus is doing. We shouldn't think of this and we don't want to think of this as disconnected from the stories around it. We've noted that Luke has jumped around some. You can look up if you got your Bible out and following along with me, which I do encourage it to keep me honest. If you look around at verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, on one occasion. You jump down to verse 12, it says, while he was in one of those cities. Verse 17, it says, on one of those days. Luke is kind of saying, oh, here, some, one of these days he did this. In one of these cities he did this. Another time he did this. But you look at verse 27, it says, after this. And so Luke is connecting this narrative, this event, with what has previously occurred. After this healing of this paralytic, after this he walks out of this city and encounters Matthew, this tax collector. This is stuck here and Jesus does this, I think, to prove a point. He's, he's saying something in this narrative. He's saying something with his actions. They're wanting us to pay special attention. And the attention is that the thing we should notice is how Christ responds to sin. 
the, what was the big scandal with the paralytic? It wasn't that Jesus healed somebody. It wasn't that he did it on a Sabbath day, which he gets into trouble on other occasions, healing on the Sabbath. He gets in trouble healing the paralytic because the man is, remember the four friends bring him, let, let him down through the roof in front of Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him? Your sins are forgiven. That's the scandal of the healing of the paralytic. This guy comes down and Jesus forgives sin. And the Pharisees don't miss it. They say, wait a second, only God can forgive sins. We talked about last week. Jesus is essentially claiming to be God. And what does, and, and, and he's saying that as God, my posture, my, uh, my mission is to forgive sins. And then after this, our text today, he walks out of this just huge revelation of Jesus forgiving the sins of the paralytic, and he walks out, and what does he do? He takes the most notorious sinner of that day, a tax collector, a publican, and what does he do? He doesn't condemn him. He doesn't come against him. He calls the man into fellowship with himself. He finds not only does Jesus forgive sins of this paralytic, but he forgives and pursues sinners. He forgives sin in the paralytic, and he goes higher to not just forgiving sin, he actually forgives sinners and pursues sinners. So the only illustration I could think of, this might be telling of the way my mind works, but I was saying, it's like if uh, my wife was getting ready for a party and she made a bunch of cupcakes has them all frosted sitting on the counter. And I walk into the kitchen and obviously the only thing you can do with a cupcake with frosting is you put your finger in, you take some of the frosting off and you eat it, right? You know, you got to have, all the wives are saying, no, don't you dare. But this is what I do, right? I go and I ask the frosting and she says, who are you to come? These are for a part. I have a, I have a purpose for these. Who are you to ruin the frosting on my cupcake? What's, who are you to do this? She objects. And my only response at that point is to then grab four or five cupcakes and walk out of the kitchen with them and eat them. You know, not only am I going to just take frosting, I'm going to take cupcakes to prove my point. It's probably a terrible illustration, but I think about cupcakes. Um, This is what Jesus is doing, right? they're, They're so shocked at this scandal that he would forgive sins and it's almost like he says, you, you think forgiving sins is a big deal. I'm going to go take this person that you think is, is worse than a, than a prostitute, worse than a harlot, a tax collector. And I'm going to forgive him of his sins and call him to follow me. He just ramps up this radical call of his pursuit of sinners. It's exactly what he does, right? After this, he goes out of the city, and this is where the tax collector booth would be located, right? They're involved in tariffs. They're involved this location of Capernaum as roads are going east and west and north and south and kind of coming through this town. Great place to gather taxes. And, and this, isn't, uh, this isn't just the general hate of the IRS either. Um, the, these tax collectors are notorious for uh, embezzling and, and just securing and basically robbing people of their money. We know that, you remember reading about John the Baptist, the tax collectors show up to John the Baptist who's proclaiming people to repent. The tax collectors show up and they say, well, John the Baptist, what should we do? The tax collectors ask him. And he says to them, 
collect no more than you need to. That, that was the sin, that was the repentance they needed to engage in, was don't collect more than you need to. Well, the way that taxes, just and this is just quickly, the way that taxes sort of worked to my understanding is that the Roman government would basically sell you the rights to a certain amount of tax. And so if you were a wealthy person, you would say, hey, I'll take this bundle of taxes, and you became accountable for it, and the Roman, so the Roman government was happy because they got their money out of this person who was offering security. I will pay this group of taxes. And then that tax collector then went out and began to collect taxes using the authority of the, of the Roman government and any other thugs they could find to basically threaten you uh, or whatever to get the money out of you. Or if you couldn't afford it, they'd help pay for it They'd give you a loan on your taxes at a slight rate of interest to owe back to them. It really was like the mafia. It was like Goodfellas only set in, in Capernaum. I mean, it was, it was the mafia is what it was. So uh, Matthew sitting here, he's a certain kind of tax collector. There were, there were big guys and there were the little guys. And the big guys hired out all of their help. But Matthew is this particularly hated kind because he was one of the guys who was out actually seeing you face-to-face demanding money from you. They had sold out themselves, Jews who had sold out themselves to the Roman government. They were traitors. They were hated sinners. Hated sinners of the lowest kind. Of the lowest kind. And so here Matthew is sitting at his tax booth, a hated sinner, and Jesus shows up and he effectually Big fancy theological word, but I'm going to use it. Look it up if you want to. But he's going to effectually call Matthew. And all that means is that effectual call. Jesus says, follow. And guess what happens? Matthew follows. His call has power. Jesus' call has power. And he says to Matthew, follow me. And what happens? Verse 28, Matthew leaves everything and he rises and follows Jesus. Now, we've seen this before, right? Jesus calls disciples. We saw him at the, at the Sea of Galilee and he calls these disciples to follow him. Peter, James, John, and Andrew. He calls them to follow him. But I don't want you to miss what Matthew has to do here. He leaves everything to follow Jesus. When a fisherman leaves Jesus, they, they leave their nets and their boats and they go follow Jesus. But it doesn't take much for a fisherman to come back, pick up their nets, and go back in their boats. And in fact, we see at the end of their lives, they do do this some. They go back to fishing when, when Jesus is, is, um, is crucified and resurrects and they don't know what to do. They, they, they go back and they, they go fishing. But a tax collector, when he walks away from his job, he's not going to come back to a job. He leaves everything. There'd be all kinds of people lined up to take Matthew's job. The call to discipleship for Matthew, don't misunderestimate it, don't miss it, is a call, is, is a call to sacrifice, to leave everything. This is a costly call for Matthew. And what does he do? He leaves everything and he rose and followed him. Now, if you were to leave everything, your livelihood, your chance at wealth, your, your, your safety, whatever, because you've got the Roman government behind you, if you were to call to leave everything, what's your general disposition normally? You'd think, well, I'll follow you, but man, I'm 
to, you know, I'm kind of leaving a lot. I'm gonna, you kind of go lowing, as they say. Okay, I'll leave everything, but man, I'm really losing a lot to follow you. That's not Matthew's posture or Levi's posture. He leaves everything, and what's he do? He throws a party. <laughs> He's like, I'm leaving everything, and we're going to celebrate because I have found the Savior, essentially. I have found the Messiah. I have been forgiven of my sin. I'm going to throw a party. And as a tax collector and a publican himself, who does he have to invite? No one but tax collectors and publicans and sinners. And so he takes all of his best friends and he says, and he invites them to this party and they throw a large party, a party, a large company, verse 29 says, of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. They laid down at their tables and they were eating large meals, long meals together Imagine the conversations Jesus is having there with these notorious sinners, calling them to follow Him, calling Him, speaking with them about the mercy and grace of God, speaking to them about His work possibly on the earth. But we see that He is there eating with them, and then what happens? The disciples, not Jesus, but the disciples get called on the carpet by the Pharisees. Verse 30, the Pharisees, their scribes, grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why would you pollute yourself by associating with these people? Why would you eat with such horrible people? Jesus answers with two kind of statements. If you read Matthew, there's a third scripture quotation from Hosea 6.6 which says, go and learn what I mean. Um, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's in Matthew. You can look at it, study it out yourself. But we've got two here that Luke records for us. And the two that he brings up are this logical statement of those who are well have no need of, of a physician, but those who are sick. Well, that's not rocket science. Okay, that's true. All right, that's a logical sentence. And then, then his mission, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So first, the, the logical line here, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Wait a second. We, if we're reading our Bibles closely, we've got to think a second. Those, those, who are physici- those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick. Who is sick in this narrative? We're not dealing with sick people. This is the, 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 le- the leper and the paralytic. Those were earlier stories. And here at the Pharisees, he's dining with sinners. And the, the analogy that he uses is those who need a physician are those who are sick. But who are the sick? Well, the obvious connection there is that the sick are the sinful. That's an important connection for us to make in our Scripture, that they are the sinful sick, the sick, sinful people. The clear parallel is that the sinner is the one who is sick. And the reason why Jesus is with sick sinners is because they are the ones who know they need a doctor. You cannot help the person who doesn't realize how much help they need. You cannot help the person who doesn't realize or doesn't believe that they need any help. This is part of the problem, I think, when we talk about the shrinking church in America. Is this reality? Is this, is this reality? There are fewer and fewer people today who have an awareness of their desperate need and sinful sickness. Fewer and fewer and fewer people aware of my desperate need. You don't come to find a physician if you don't realize you're sick. 
And so much of the problem that I think we see in our church culture across America is this realization maybe the churches don't have the physician in them would be one of my arguments. But the other issue is that fewer and fewer people see themselves accurately as the sinful sick that need a physician. No idea of their desperate need. So much time has been spent telling people that they aren't really sick. That sure, we've all messed up, we've all got problems, and none of us are getting better. Come hang out with us. We, we have a good time while we're together. Yeah, you're sick, I'm sick, we're all sick, but let's uh, get together and, and be sick together kind of thing. Just come be a part of our group. The problem with that is that there are tons of groups like that. You don't need a church to find sick people to hang out with. They're everywhere. There's, there are tons of groups you could join, and we're all in them. You could join all kinds of social groups and social events to go be around other sick people. But the Scripture and the mission of Jesus is loud and clear. Yes, you are like everyone else. But that means there's one glaring reality. You are sick with sin. You are sick with sin. And you need a physician. You are sick with sin. You are a sick sinner in desperate need of a physician. Inclusion is such a buzzword. If you read, if you follow up on church things at all, this we're getting real big into inclusion, 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 inclusion. And yes, I want the doors open for everyone. Absolutely. With this reality. Come, be included, and realize you're a sinner like all of us in here. Yes, inclusion, but inclusion not at the expense of the reality of our sinfulness and the severity of our problem. We are all sinners. If you're in here, Romans 3.23 tells you clearly, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. This is the bad news that must be we must come to grips with to hear the rest of the good news. Read this in a commentary. The church is the only fellowship in the world where the one requirement for membership is the unworthiness of the candidate. The church is the one organization in the world, where, or is the only fellowship in the world where the one requirement for membership is the unworthiness of the candidate. We are all sinners which leaves us in a desperate state before a holy God. Colossians 3, 5-8 through 8 says it this way. It says, put to death. He's speaking to Christians and talking about their ongoing wrestle with sin. But he says, put to death, Paul writing to the church at Colossae, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Paul says that you couldn't be more clear. In these two you once walked, he continues on, he says, when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. Also put these things away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. This reality that we as sinful, sick people are provoking the wrath of God towards us. When you miss that reality, there's no need to find a physician. If you don't have the message of, here's the reality of your state apart from Christ, you're desperate. You are in desperate need. Can I ask you this question? What's your qualification for being here? Why, why are you here? What are your qualifications? 
And if any qualifications that you make, if you make any, I'm here because of this, that, or the other. If you have anything more than your desperate need as a sinner under the wrath of God in need to be forgiven and by His grace received, reconciled, and accepted, if 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 your qualification is anything more than that, you're overqualified to be here. You're overqualified. This is a gathering for sinners to come the sick in desperate need of a physician to forgive them. But if you do know yourself to be a sick sinner, so this is the one clear reality Jesus lifts up, the obvious thing, the sick need a physician. If you do know yourself to be a sick sinner, if you do realize that, yes, I am polluted from within myself, you're right where you need to be. You're right where you need to be. Because really, it's where everyone is at. The realization, I am in desperate need of a physician. Jesus states the purpose of His mission and He says it's this, I have not come to call the righteous. Which He says kind of sarcastically. I mean, he's, I've not come to call those who think they're righteous. But I've come to call sinners to repentance. Once we see and our eyes are open to the reality of our impoverished state before a holy and righteous God, we are right where we need to be. Why? Because Jesus hasn't come to call those who think they're righteous. He's come to call sinners to repentance. He's come to call us to repentance, giving us forgiveness and His fellowship. J.C. Ryle says this, Are we sensible of our own wickedness and sinfulness? Do we feel that we are unworthy of anything but wrath and condemnation? Then let us understand that we are the very persons for whose sake Jesus came into the world. If we feel ourselves righteous, Christ has nothing to say to us. But if we feel ourselves sinners, Christ calls us to repentance. Let not the call be made in vain. Do you see the treasure that we're to see that we have in Christ? Our culture works overtime trying to build us up in love for yourself. Love yourself. Build yourself up. Think positively about yourself. Build yourself up. And we just work overtime almost Uh, Is it Stuart Smalley that looks in the mirror and wakes up in the morning and says, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. And we work overtime to try to just, you know, love your, build yourself up, and you're, you're the bee's knees, and all the louder the world shouts to us, love yourself. But all along, there's that nagging realization inside of herself, I've got problems. There's, there's things that don't make sense in my own heart. I want to be this, and I fall short even of my own standard, over and over and over again. And that voice inside of ourselves, it tells us to face the truth, to be open and honest about ourselves and our sin and our rebellion, turning away from that sin and not love yourself, but look, dear sinner, love Christ who has loved you with an everlasting love. First John 4, I didn't even plan that. That, that was great this morning. We love Because He first loved us. We love because He first loved us. And so my plea with you this morning is not work hard to love yourself. Realize there ain't much lovely about my sinful self. But in love, (laughs) 
God sent His Son to be the propitiation for my sins. I love Him, not me. I love Him because He first loved me and gave His Son to be the propitiation, the wrath-appeasing sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice for my sins. Romans 5, 6-8 says, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for who? Christ died for the ungodly. You're unable to say you're ungodly. Christ has not died for you. Christ has died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sometimes I'm convinced that I have big needs in my life and I have friends that have big needs in their life get a text message like a day yesterday, you know, friends in, in need and in trouble, and you think, oh, there's, these, there's so many needs pressing around us. But so many times I think of those needs and forget and, and don't see them in light of this one great need of a sinner before a holy and righteous God. Meeting needs here is good, but no matter how many needs are met for you in this temporal life, they will eventually all fail. The man whose sin is forgiven is blessed beyond measure. David says in Psalm 32, Blessed is the man against whom you count no iniquity. You want to know what blessing is? You want to know what real met need is? It's the forgiveness of your sins. It's that you, deserving the wrath, the condemnation of a holy and righteous God, would look towards you, not with His wrath anymore, but look towards you with the love of His Son, seeing in you one who is confessing their sins, trusting in the work of Christ, who did what? Came to earth, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we deserved, so that through repentance and faith in Him, we could be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to this great God. This is what Christ has done. He has come to be a physician for the sick, to call sinners to repentance, to forgive them, and to bring them into full, forever fellowship with Him. Don't work harder at trying to love yourself. Don't work harder at trying to love yourself. Be honest. This is who I am. Work hard at remembering and gazing into the One who does love you and loved you in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the one who loved you all the way to the cross. When we have and when you have full fellowship with the creator of the universe and the one who controls and holds it all together, you in the real sense of the phrase have nothing to fear. When you have full fellowship with the one who created it all, you truly have nothing to fear. There is good news in our passage this morning. Jesus is a friend to sinners. Not to endorse their staying as sinners, but to forgive them as sinners and to be set them free. Religion will tell you over and over again, get right, get right, get right, and then come be in fellowship with our God. Christianity comes to you and says, come to me, you sinners, and be made right through the sacrifice of my son. Let's pray. Father, I, I long that we would see ourselves clearly. Because when we do confess the reality of our sinfulness, it puts us in just the right spot to receive your forgiveness. That you and your mercy would open our eyes to our sinfulness, 
that your grace would then pour in, forgive us of our sins, and bring us into fellowship with you. God, do that work as only you can do it in our hearts in this place this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.